We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. This is the second part of a two-part episode. To hear part one, listen to last week's episode, and then come back for this one. What strikes me about this and the way you've been talking about it the entire time we've been together is this entire story of relationship and wholeness, of making sure that every voice has its place and and a lot in the space for it. And I'm just reminded of, um, it's been such a long time since I read it. It's years ago when I was in grad school. But this reminds me of, of some of the work I read when I read uh, Michel Foucault's work on mental illness and civilization and everything. And he talks about how society at one point had a place for those with mental illness it may not have been a perfect place, but it was a place where they were in relationship to the rest of the world. And then we shifted civilization, quote unquote, shifted, and we got more, quote, reasonable, end quote. And that's when we started to lock away and shun and really push away so that there was no relationship with those who are mentally ill. So this really feels like it's a story of what we talk about on this podcast is toxic silence of, of a silencing that's going on. And, and you just spoke a little bit personally about how you needed to speak to allow for that wholeness. Do you have another story maybe from the, from the book or, or f- that you'd like to share with us about a time where what it looks like when a voice that's been silenced has no, is allowed of a space. And so that we can, integrate them back into the community and into, especially like here, you're talking about faith community. What does that look like when a silenced voice, that toxic silence is allowed to be pulled back and we can hear other voices? In my work as a minister for disability and mental health justice for the United Church of Christ, I'm privileged to meet the most amazing people. And one of the roles that I serve is to support people seeking ordination who, for whatever reason, represent a culture that is different than the, than the majority culture. And so for, for us, uh, one example of that is a disability culture. And so I was able to uh, partner with someone seeking ordination who is from a disability culture because uh, they were silenced by the committee on ministry Mm. that they were working with because of their disability. Uh, The committee on ministry just looked at this person and could only see their disability. Mm. And because of the disability, uh, it made them question their ability to serve as a pastor. And so when I worked with this committee on ministry, I tried to help them understand that our society and our church is ableist. We have a preference for people who are able-bodied. And so when we view candidates who have a physical disability, 
we are biased and we automatically think that they're not able. And so I asked the committee on ministry, I said, how would you treat this person if they presented as the ideal candidate for ministry? And I said, who is your ideal candidate for ministry? This is 2019, this was last fall. And they said, well, white, male, straight, married, young, but not too wow. young. Wow. And this person uh, was not those things. Oh, able-bodied, you know, would be the ideal candidate. And so I said, please consider treating this person and asking this person the same questions you would ask your ideal candidate. Treat them the same way you would treat the ideal candidate. So we really worked through some of their implicit bias, some of the ableism that frankly, we as a church are guilty of, right? It's not just this small group of people, mm -hmm. um, but the whole church. And so working with them uh, when they were able to meet with the candidate and decided to treat that person as they would treat anyone else, a whole new conversation happened. And I share that as an example of toxic silence because our discrimination, our ableism is toxic and kills conversation, kills communication, kills any opportunity of authentic connection or relationships. And so the way we can combat toxic silence is by empowering people to acknowledge and address our bias and our ableism. So once they addressed their ableism and their bias, they had the most amazing conversation and they allowed the candidate to be fully themselves and heard brilliant theological reflections about the sacraments, about communion and baptism and what it means to be a pastor. And they even said, wow, this seems like a whole new person. It's a whole new person we're, we're talking to now. Sarah, I'm, I'm struck that our current movement right now in life with sheltering in place and this movement to online church has really been more accessible for a lot of people. It's been also a request for those in the mental health and disability world that they've been desiring for a long time. Yeah, it's, it's just made a lot of sense in terms of accessibility. And I wonder what is your vision or hope for the future of the church amid all this uncertainty and these changes and how to maintain this accessibility um, because I've been really just really struck and touched by all the voices I have been failing to listen to seeing now that more people are able to come right and that more people are able to see and be in church when and if it works for them it's just been really inspiring but also really striking for me to recognize how many voices I have not been listening to so I've been reading some disability activists and while on the whole, it's, it is very positive that traditional institutions have pivoted and found ways to make worship and spirituality accessible online. 
there is a side to that that is extremely disturbing for disability activists who have been advocating for this kind of access and accommodations for years mm -hmm. and have been mm -hmm. told over and over again, it's not possible, it's not affordable, it's mm -hmm. not doable. And so the, um, the anger and the, out, the outrage and the injustice is that only when able-bodied people ask for something Mm. Is it given or is it made possible? Is the money found? Is the technology available? Right. That it's this moves to on. Yeah. As mm -hmm. soon as it impacts able-bodied people, then it's a real issue. So it's been seen as an ableist movement. And the fear and the concern is that once this passes, we go back to the way it was before people mm. with disabilities will be forgotten. And I have seen among my clergy colleagues, uh, because they miss the in-person so much that they are very eager to abandon online ministry and online church and strictly go back to face-to-face. -to -face. And one thing I've been thinking about is that for so many faith communities, this was thrust upon them that it will be associated with trauma and with crisis, mm. that it won't be a positive association. You know, oh, remember when we went online? You know, it was because of a global pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so um, I do have concerns that there'll be a backlash and the interests and the needs of the disability community will not be high priority. Sarah? Could you share with us some of the disability activists whose work you follow? Um, I would love to be able to, um, to highlight them uh, on our website, on the show notes that will accompany this podcast so that we can introduce their work to some other people. One of the disability activists and theologians that has um, really shaped our conversations today is Nancy Iceland. And she has passed away. However, she wrote a book called The Disabled God. And it was um, very provocative and very meaningful because she claims in a beautiful way that all people are created in the image of God, including people born with disabilities and people who develop dis disabilities. And not only are we created in the image of God, but that God, God's self has disabilities. And she looks at the story of Jesus's death and crucifixion. And when he appears to his disciples, he shows them his wounds. And the wounds are so severe that they killed him. And they, in fact, you know, disabled his body. Yet when he appears after the resurrection, he continues to have the marks of that disability. And so Jesus in that way is disabled. And in the triune God, God is disabled. So her thinking has really revolutionized disability theology. It's a fairly new field in the Christian tradition. And so we have um, some young scholars who are working on their PhDs and dissertations as we speak. I have a professor I'm working with, Kirsty Jones, 
She teaches at United Theological Seminary in Dayton, Ohio. And we just had a discussion of her paper. She writes about Psalm 139, and she talks about the senses and how in the scripture it talks about knowing God. You know, God, you have searched me and you have known me. You know, my coming in and my going out. You hem me in behind and before. And how there's a lot of movement in that psalm and that there's a way to experience God not just through cognitive knowing, but you can experience God's presence in your body and in your movement, in your sitting down and in your rising up. And for her, that's really profound, especially as we think about people with intellectual disabilities or others with um, dementia and how their cognitive functioning may not allow for a classical knowing, intellectual knowing of God but in the scriptures, we see there's there's other ways to know God. You can know God in your body. And so I think that's a beautiful interpretation that she brings to our scriptures from a disability lens. This conversation on Encountering Silence will continue after a 30-second break of silence. Take a moment and breathe with us. Following up on that, are there thinkers, teachers, uh, authors in this area? Because, you know, talking about the body and then um, going online, it's an interesting kind of paradoxical thing. I do a lot of work about nature. And so here I am. There's I've had conversations with people who say to me, you're telling people, you know, to go outside into nature. And yet here we are, we're doing an online class. You're suggesting embodiment in a place like outside, breathing the air, et cetera, and yet you're online, which seems to remove you away from being outside and, and breathing the air and being next to a tree. You're inside. So in a church that's very much about a body, sacramental, incarnation, I- engagement, is there uh, work or authors that are tragic, you know, uh, crossing these lines and talking about this with embodiment, disability? Etc. And that and that online space. What does it mean to look like to be church, to be an embodied church in an online space, confronting all these issues that you're raising? My uh, doctoral dissertation in 2011 mm. was uh, ministry and social media: the challenges of building beloved community on Facebook. Wow, that's awesome. So. <laughs> Martin Luther King Jr.'s understanding of, of beloved community. Yeah. Beloved community being a community of justice and love. Yeah. And how do we build that online and some of the challenges to that? And I think we're still asking those questions. You know, how do we build beloved community online? Yeah. Is, is that book available? 
did it get published afterwards or is it just a dissertation at this point? That, that's a dissertation at this point. Okay. Yeah. But um, I like I like your idea and I think there's a lot. That's what's exciting to me about this field is it's a new field. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot more thinking and exploring, writing, a lot more conversations to have. Mm. Sarah, in your book, you discuss one of your first encounters with a silent retreat. And it seemed to be a really significant experience for you. And I wonder, since that encounter and since you wrote this book, do you have you maintained a kind of silence practice? What does that look like now for you? Do you still find that to be an important touchstone for your spiritual life? The Lily Endowment is primarily concerned with religious life in America and especially with with pastors and congregations. And so about 20 years ago, they invested um, a lot of resources to encourage churches to find ways to improve their vibrancy and vitality. And I benefited from one of those early programs called the Bethany Fellows. And it's a spiritual model of silence and spiritual gifts and discernments. It takes new pastors, young new pastors, and teaches them the spiritual practice of silence. And so starting in 2003, I began what was a five-year program that invited me on retreat twice a year. And within that retreat, a 24-hour period of silence was right at the heart Mm. of the retreat. Mm. And uh, that was a critical time for me as a young pastor. Um, As you know, during that time, my father died. And it was during those retreats and those silences that I was able to sit in that pain and sit in that unknowing and sit in that discomfort and not be terrorized by it, but encounter God in that pain and that discomfort and be invited through it, having the spirit companion me in the silence through the pain and the suffering and have mentors there waiting to catch me if I fell. And so part of that program is not only the silence, but also the mentors who are surrounding you and walking with you. So for the first five years of my ministry, I had that practice, and it was so important to me that I continued that on my own. And then I became a leader in a new group. And so then for the next five years, as a leader, I provided that space and had that space for myself. And now as a pastor, I have started a day of prayer. It's a monthly day of prayer where I go to a local retreat center and have a day of silence. And I find that that's really crucial from, for my own sense of grounding and uh, creating space to discern and to listen to the Spirit. Do you have any thoughts on how to bring that spacious silence into the local congregation? There is a really exciting proposal in process for how to do that. And so to be continued, hopefully there'll, there'll be that opportunity coming in the next year. You know, a, a, a small way, a small way that I felt has had a really big impact at our church, Sarah, 
was the way that you have begun to implement the passing of the peace. Would you mind sharing about that? Because the peace can bring a lot of anxiety and uncertainty for people, that time of kind of feeling like you quote unquote should be connecting and shaking hands and, and this and that. Could you share a little bit about what we've done? Yes, I mean, the irony is that the peace in the church, the passing of the peace is not peaceful. Yeah. And I think I learned that as a young pastor, when I had members of my church who would suddenly disappear, you know, during that time. And then in my own family with people with anxiety and social anxiety, it was always very awkward and uncomfortable. So what we do now, we are a uh, mental health ministry church, a wise church, welcoming, inclusive, supportive, engaged for mental health. And Cassidy, your leadership has helped us implement this, is we're inviting people during that time of the peace to take time for nurturing inner peace, that part of sharing peace is to experience that own peace within. And so we give permission and we instruct people, if you would like to use this gift of time to nurture your own inner peace, feel free to remain seated and quiet and others will respect your choice and and make space for you to have that time of of inner peace. Also inviting people to um, not pressure others, um, not have expectations of others, but to simply honor how each person chooses to be during that time. It was really beautiful to see that implemented, as I'm sure you guys can imagine, that first Sunday. And seeing people take advantage of, of navigating and going to the place of inner peace and, and watching people respect each other. And it was really, really lovely. It was so refreshing. Uh, and to see people choosing that I didn't, that kind of surprised me that they were choosing to do that. And I think one time I chose to do it. <laughs> Normally I'm, I'm hurrying around the sanctuary, but I think one of those Sundays I, I really felt the need to sit and to um, experience that inner peace. So I like how it gives everyone permission to do what's best for them in the moment. That's beautiful. Thank you. Sarah, we're always interested in with our conversation partners to find out uh, who inspires them or who they would consider to be their silence heroes or, or poets or writers that are particularly nurturing for them. Thank you for, for telling us about some of the disability uh, activists and theologians. I'm wondering just on a more broader scale if they're is anyone that you would think of as kind of a silence hero or a silence inspirer for you? Well, I am preparing for this afternoon's session with my church to read to them from Richard Rohr's book, The Universal Christ, which I read in, I think, one, one sitting. It was really food for my soul. And so um, I'm looking at this book now, and he begins with a quote from Thomas Merton that I'd like to share. No despair of ours can alter the reality of things, nor sustain the joy of the cosmic dance, which is always there. So I'll read that quote again. Thomas Merton No despair of ours can alter the reality of things, 
nor stain the joy of the cosmic dance, which is always there. Sarah, another question we like to ask when we wrap things up is, do you have a silence hero? Someone dead or alive that embodies the beauty or the power of silence for you? I am so uh, fortunate to have my silence hero be the first woman I witnessed in ministry. And I remember as a young girl in church, Kim Gage Ryan, she was um, eight months pregnant, leading us in the sacrament of Holy Communion and lifting up the bread above her beautifully <laughs> pregnant belly and breaking the bread and, and saying, you know, this is the body of Christ broken for you in that high sacramental moment. So she is uh, my silence hero. She went on to not only be my pastor, but also to be the person who married my husband and I, who ordained me. Um, she is my son's godmother and she is my mentor in ministry and has been with me um, on this long journey. So she has led me into that, that place of silence that is holy, that is holy and, and healing, and that makes for wholeness. Hmm. So I think silence, in order for it to feel safe, for a lot of us needs to have a host. Hmm a person who holds that silence and who is hosting our, our visit. Thank you for saying that. That's beautiful. And I think that's vital. Thank you. Yeah. Essential. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been wonderful to talk with you as always. And thank you for the important, important work and holy work that you are doing in the church for awareness, for justice, and to reduce stigma. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you for being that host of silence for others, especially for those, mm -hmm. for all of us, so that we can all be more whole. Uh, when we exclude any of the voices, we exclude parts of ourselves, and that your work allowing for all of us to come forth and so that all the brothers and sisters can come together so that we could all finally meet our, each other is essential work. So it's been an absolute pleasure meeting you and hearing about what your ministry is. And, and I just, I look forward to learning more about your work and see what you do. Thank you for everything. Thank you so much. We are Encountering Silence. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, KevinMichaelJohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is CarlMcCollman.com. Please visit the podcast website at EncounteringSilence.com. There, you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, 
the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit Patreon.com slash Encountering Silence. This way you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. <laughs>